If you would uh, take your Bibles, and I want us to spend uh, our time this evening looking at the opening two paragraphs in Galatians chapter 3. So if you would turn there to Galatians chapter 3. I want to thank you for um, inviting me to come. It's been a real joy to be back and see how God's working in the church and just be part of your fellowship again. And so um, I just encourage those that are in charge to um, feel free to call on me anytime you'd like. I'd love to come back. Well, let's read the opening um, nine verses of Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Father, we ask that you would bless your word. And as we consider it together tonight, that you would use it to again convict and to encourage, to strengthen our faith, to renew our minds, and to reshape our lives. So I pray that your spirit would rest upon your word tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. In Matthew's gospel, there's a brief exchange that's recorded for us. between It's uh, an exchange between John the Baptist and the Pharisees and uh, Sadducees. A, a number of Jewish leaders had come to observe John's baptisms, and John calls them to, to repentance, probably not something they expected. They didn't expect to be confronted in such a straightforward way, but John calls them to repent. And he also warns them to flee the wrath to come. These were men born into the covenant community. And they presumed that they were right with God by virtue of their blood ties to Abraham. And John confronts their, 
their religious pride by, by saying to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's a powerful point. And perhaps a disturbing one to the Pharisees and Sadducees that were confronted with this truth. God can raise up children for Abraham from wherever He chooses. His grace, His saving grace, isn't confined to a single people group. It's not confined to the Jews only. But this gives us, I think, a glimpse into the religious, the religious climate of the early first century. There's a lot of confusion. There's religious pride. There's racism uh, very present here. And it was shaping the attitudes of Jews and Gentiles toward one another. The churches in the Galatian region were made up of of both Jews and Gentiles. So we had these, these attitudes of being brought into the life of the early church. And even though Jesus was a Jew, and these, these early Christians, this Christian movement was considered a Jewish um, offshoot, the constituency of the church was becoming increasingly Gentile. Many Jews were resistant to the Gospel. And the Gentiles were beginning to respond. And they were responding in significant numbers and coming into the life of the church. And this was creating some strong religious and relational and, and racial tensions within the church. Gentiles, pagans, were now considered in, in some mysterious way to be the children of Abraham. This was unacceptable. Unacceptable to the majority of uh, Jewish converts in Galatia. They were insisting that the Gentile converts be circumcised. They were requiring that these Gentile converts into the freedom of the Gospel and the Christian message that they should follow Jewish law and traditions. They found uh, that this Radical inclusiveness of the Gospel was very threatening to the Jew. It struck at the very heart of their religious pride and their self-identity. It offended them. It offended them to think that Christ, who they acknowledged to be the Jewish Messiah, that he would have any interest in pagans, that he would actually call them into the covenant family and give them equal standing 
equal status within the, uh, the community. That they were sharing the same status as blood-born Jews. They were children, legitimate children of Abraham. So for some of the Jewish converts, this was causing them to question the rightness of their conclusions about Jesus, that he was, in fact, their messianic savior. Could their Messiah, that they had anticipated and longed for his coming, could he actually embrace pagans who they considered to be only worthy of the fires of hell. Now for others, it hardened their insistence that Jewish practices be mixed with Christian beliefs. To the apostle, to Paul, this um, exclusive and racist form of Christianity was based on what he calls another gospel, a different gospel. And also their wrong-headed conviction that justification before God wasn't by grace alone, but rather by religious works and grace. Paul says this is a distortion of the, the pure gospel. It's not the gospel. It's not the good news that I preach is what Paul is, is saying. It's not fewer. Paul speaks plainly to this uh, very early in his letter, um, in this letter our, uh, of Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We need to protect the gospel. It's so, it's so easy for us to drift, to, uh, to lapse back into works religion. That's our natural instinct. We need to worship. We need to work. We need to earn God's favor. And so Paul warns them, says, I'm astonished. I'm absolutely, utterly surprised that you have so quickly embraced a gospel that is different. It's not the real gospel. They were abandoning the apostolic gospel, the, the authorized gospel. And they were preaching a contrived perversion of the Christian message. They were, in fact, bewitched. This is the word Paul, the word Paul uses in uh, the first question he poses. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The New English Bible renders it this way, you stupid Galatians, you must have been bewitched. 
Bewitched is a very strong word. It's a form of the verb baskino, meaning to deceive, to mislead, or to entice through fascination. They were under the spell of works-based religion, and their convictions were shaped by racism and religious pride. It's a curious thing, isn't it? The idea of merit, merited salvation. It's a curious thing that it has such a tremendous appeal to human pride. And it's at, at the very heart of every man-made religious system. This is true of all the major living religions. It's true of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and the Christian cults. They're all based on works. What you do. In these systems, salvation is what you earn. It's not what you receive. And this, why, this is why the, the Christian gospel is so different. And, and it's so foreign to our basic religious instincts. Biblical salvation is grounded solely in God's grace and mercy. It's not God's response to human goodness. And yet, and I think it's important to note this, it doesn't mean that a call to good works is absent from the Christian message. In fact, it's very present. But it's positioned differently in the Gospel. In works religion, it's by good works that we merit, that we earn salvation. The Christian understanding is that good works confirm our justified standing in grace. That if we're truly born of the Spirit, if we're truly regenerated, it will evidence itself in a life that is being sanctified and transformed and renewed and, and changed. It's a process that unfolds over time, but it confirms the fact that we're truly saved, set apart unto God. The question I think we all have to face is, are we trying to earn God's favor? Listen, it's a frustrating, it's a vain endeavor. We need to run to Christ. We need to confess our sin. We need to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. To the grace of God. We need to decide that we're going to follow Him in the fellowship of His church. That He becomes Lord and we become His servant. Now what made 
the Galatians' actions even more disturbing to Paul was the fact that they understood the gospel. I want you to look again at the last line in verse 1. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. When Paul preached, preached to them in the Galatian churches, everywhere he went, every time he faced a new audience, Paul focused on the cross. He did this even in cosmopolitan Corinth. He said in writing to them, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Came to you in this, this city that was known for its philosophical debates, its intellectualism, its, its education, and certainly Paul could have engaged in those kinds of conversations, but he said, there's one thing, I came and I preached and promoted, and that was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross. The statement in our text, publicly portrayed as crucified, refers to the content of Paul's Gospel message. And it wasn't simply a rehearsal of the crucifixion story as a historical event, even though that was part of the message. But rather, it was the explanation of the crucifixion as a redemptive event, a real event, a real historical event, but it was a redemptive event. Christ died. The soul the sole uh, basis of new covenant life is on what Christ did at Calvary. And yet, they were being enticed. And we can as well, if we're not careful, they were being enticed to embrace another gospel, one that denied the sufficiency of Christ's saving sacrifice at Calvary. Yes, Jesus died, some say, but we need to do our part. We are justified solely on the basis of what Christ has done, and it's, it's a, a declaration of grace. It's God's work. His work alone. At this point, the apostle provokes them to consider the wrongness of their convictions. He does this by asking four crucial questions. The first is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is an important question. Did you merit the infilling of the Holy Spirit by law-keeping? Or was it the gift of grace received by faith? Faith producing 
resulting in being born of the Spirit? Or was it this gift of grace and a gift of grace alone, not by works? Paul underscores this this particular idea, this, this fundamental truth of the Gospel. Justified by faith and faith alone. Listen to Dr. Herman um, Ritterboss. He speaks to this point. Quote, The apostle refers his readers to this because the receiving of the gift of the Spirit is surely the most unmistakable evidence of God's favor and the plainest guarantee of eternal redemption. The believer's infilling with the Holy Spirit is the defining and verifying feature of Christian conversion. The question Paul poses is, is poignant. Did you come into the life of the Spirit by keeping Jewish law or by placing your faith in the saving work of Jesus? plain answer to the question is by faith in Christ. How foolish it is to turn back then to Jewish law keeping. The three questions that follow build on this first one. Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The logic of this question is clear. Since you're, you've come into the life of the Spirit by faith, can you expect to come into Christian maturity through human effort? Remember, uh, this is a rhetorical question. A particular answer is expected. And the expected answer is no. The redemptive work of Christ started by the Holy Spirit can never be completed by the flesh. The work of conversion is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The third question is in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? There's a variant in the text here. The phrase, did you suffer? In other translations is rendered, did you experience? Did you experience so many things in vain. Their experience certainly did include suffering. The New English Bible translates uh, this, this phrase, this line, uh, with this in mind, this idea. Have you had such wonderful spiritual experience all to no purpose? Was the inner witness of the Holy Spirit 
assuring you that you're truly a child of God? Was this empty? Was it illegitimate? Did you suffer for Christ? Did you suffer for your Christian witness for no good purpose? The answer to both of these questions is no. Then there's a fourth question. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The the anticipated answer is by hearing with faith. Notice, Notice what Paul does with this answer. He says that this isn't some new, it's not some novel idea. The reality is that this faith principle was also at work in Abraham. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith, not because of any moral merit. That's true for us as well. We were declared righteous. We were justified by our faith. An aside, perhaps it's always important to to, uh, make this notation the theological category of justification and the category of sanctification um, need to be kept distinct. We are justified before God by faith alone. We don't contribute to our justification. But our sanctification is a partnership. We are declared righteous and we are We are quickened by the Holy Spirit so that now we are responsive to the Holy Spirit and we join in obedience and a life lived in obedience which unfolds in a progressive work of sanctification, of transformation, being changed by the grace of God. Justified by faith and faith alone. Sanctified by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, which we embrace and we engage in by an obedient life. Lord, help me to be faithful. Help me to grow. I I now have a desire, a passion to grow in Christ to see my life radically reshaped and reoriented, to become transformed by the ongoing gracious work of God's Spirit in my life. So Abraham, just like us, was justified by faith trusting Christ alone for our salvation. He was justified by faith, not by works. 
This is a counterintuitive idea, and it's unique to the biblical message. Righteousness, right standing with God, is acquired by faith, by hearing with faith. It's important, important that we understand that it's not faith without an object. It's faith in response to hearing the gospel. It's trusting God's redemptive promise. It's surrendering to the Lordship and to the rule of Christ. It's turning away from a self-serving claim to goodness. It's turning to Jesus. It's clinging to Jesus. Confessing our sins. Believing that He alone is able to save. This understanding of righteousness is imputed to us by hearing with faith. This forms the heart of primitive Judaism and it's the core theme of the Christian Gospel. This being the case, an essential and radical concept is introduced in verses 7 through 9. Paul writes, and I want to read a paraphrase of this section. You can see from this that the real children of Abraham are all the men who, uh, the men of faith who truly trust in God. What's more, the Scriptures look forward to this time when God would save the Gentiles also through their faith. God told Abraham about this long ago when He said, I will bless those in every nation who trust in Me as you do. And so it is. All who trust in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received. This is, this is consistent Pauline theology. Listen to portions of a companion passage in Romans 4. I want to read verses 1 through 3 of Romans 4 and then 9 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal 
of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham, he was declared righteous before he was circumcised. He was declared righteous. Righteousness was imputed to him. This was very disturbing to, for Jews to hear. And yet, it's not an understanding foreign to the revelation that had been given to them. It was simply obscured. It was obscured by their focus on external religious practices. They, they gave more attention to Moses than to Abraham. Here's the concept that makes the Christian gospel so compelling. And it's the concept that was so disturbing to Jews. Jews then and Jews now. It's built on two companion ideas. First, the blessing of Abraham is righteousness imputed by faith. Second, all those who trust in the saving work of Christ, all those who embrace Him by faith, are children of Abraham. Paul, Paul makes this related statement in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, Jewishness is strictly an ethnic, cultural, and religious identifier. It carries absolutely no spiritual or redemptive weight. What Paul's saying is that the Jew-Gentile distinction is inconsequential. All people, people from every race, every language, every ethnicity, are reconciled to God the same way by placing their faith in Christ, the second Adam. And he's the only redeemer. Our saving substitutes. That, that's who he is. He's the embodiment and the giver of eternal life. This understanding of salvation 
strips away our pride. It eliminates any basis of human boasting. Salvation comes from outside of us as a gift. Here's the question. The question we, we need to answer. Are we foolishly trusting our good works, or our family ties, our church membership, or have we abandoned this failed project of works religion? And have we embraced Christ by faith? It's a question. A question I ask myself every day. Am I truly trusting? Am I truly trusting Jesus? I trusting the sufficiency of his death and his resurrection for my salvation and that alone. It's the question we need to ask ourselves tonight and perhaps every day. Lord, keep me from slipping into a, a works-based kind of religion. Keep me centered on Jesus and trusting what he's done, clinging to the cross of Christ. That's where we have life. That's the gospel, the good news. The gospel is who is Jesus and what did he do and how can I appropriate what he's done for me? It's appropriated by faith. Let's be faithful to him. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize again our own, uh, our own weaknesses, our very natural uh, inclination to lapse into works religion, to become prideful. Pray, Lord, that you would keep us humbled before you and clinging to Christ and recognizing that we're justified by faith. We're sanctified by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we strive to walk in obedience to you. And it's a struggle that Pilgrimage is not easy. There are times of failure and disobedience and, and rebellion. But Lord, you always call us back. Keep us broken and aware of our need for you. Keenly aware that our salvation comes from outside from you, from your gracious hand. And as a result, may we find ourselves loving Jesus more every day, trusting more, growing in faith. We need you desperately. So tonight again, as we come to the close of another Lord's Day, the beginning of a new week, 
We surrender. Our lives are yours. Keep us throughout the week, I pray, Lord. Help us to be faithful followers. May you be glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name.